for confession this morning, go ahead and grab that if you would and go with me to chapter number 8 and then also paragraph number 8. And if you'd like to find John chapter number 6, John chapter number 6, we'll be uh, starting there with our references that this paragraph deals with. We'll be starting with John 6:37 this morning in just a few moments. This morning I want us to consider the subject of the application of salvation the application of salvation. Um, This morning, I'm going to, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to try to get through a couple of sections or maybe a section at a time. I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask if there's any questions before we we go on further. Uh, I realized that last week, especially, um, I got a little bit of feedback that last week's lesson was especially uh, uh, deep uh, especially a little bit, had a lot more depth to it that maybe I maybe should have stopped along the way. So I'd like to do that today. I want to stop and during our, our time of study, give you an opportunity to ask some questions about the, the subject we're dealing with at the time. So maybe we can clarify some things if we need to. But this morning, as we talk about the application of salvation, as we typically do when we begin a paragraph, let's look at this paragraph together. It says, To all those for whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing unto them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, and all of free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. So we're still considering Christ the Mediator. And we're still considering the offices or the functions of the mediator. If you were to kind of give this paragraph a title, and we're kind of doing that by calling this the application of salvation, but this would even more specifically uh, be be called the mediation particularly and effectually applied. We've talked about his offices, but this paragraph talks about how his mediatorial functions are actually applied. In other words, how, do those, how are these things real, especially as it comes to salvation? In other words, these are not just concepts. They're actually applications. Salvation is actually and effectually applied. It's, salvation is not a concept. Salvation is not a subject. Salvation is actually applied. It's applied to those whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption. Okay, he actually applies the salvation. Salvation is not something that's just made as a choice to take it in. It's actually applied through Christ. So what this particular paragraph does, and as we've mentioned in the the overview of of the paragraphs of, of chapter number eight, Uh, This is another example of where we're given this this amazing picture of the manner in which Christ saves his chosen people, how he actually does it, uh, how he does it specifically. Um, And what I love about this paragraph is it is very decisive. Okay, this is not something that contains any uncertainty to it. It, it, is, it, is, it talks about words like overcoming all their enemies. 
uh, talks about free and absolute grace. The very second phrase talks, he doth certainly and effectually and, and apply and communicate the same. Apply and communicate the same what? The eternal redemption. So not only does he apply salvation, he also communicates salvation. It, it shows us this closer and closer picture of how Christ is in fact all in all. He doesn't do one aspect of it. He does all aspects of it. He not only makes it, he doesn't only reveals it, but he communicates it and he applies it. So when we, when we look at this paragraph this morning, we're looking at this absolute application of salvation. And specifically, although the words priest, prophet, and king are not mentioned in this particular paragraph, those three offices are now more specifically described in their functions. Okay, so what each one of those offices does. So the functions of a prophet, priest, and king in salvation. How do these functions work? Well, to kind of generalize it, we would say that Christ reveals, Christ intercedes, and Christ governs. Those three things, revealing, interceding, and governing, are all part of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Okay? There's some phrases in here that, in this paragraph that don't mention priest or prophet or king, but they're phrases that describe the function of that office. For example, the word priest with regard to function is found there in the third phrase that says, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit. You'll notice the key word there is intercession. The intercession, the word intercession, references back to his office of, as a priest. But notice it not only says he makes intercession, but he is the one that actually unites them to himself. Okay, does everybody see that? It's not just communicating. He actually intercedes and unites. So we see the office and a function of priest in that phrase. We see the prophet where it says revealing unto them. Okay, that's the next phrase. Revealing unto them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. Well, the word reveal means to make known. What was the office specifically of a prophet in the Old Testament? To reveal. So this is a description of Christ as the mediator revealing unto them who is the them. The them is those whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption for. So he's the one through his office of prophet as functioning prophet reveals unto those he has chosen unto himself in and by his word. That's how he does it. The mystery of salvation. Okay, so we see priest, we see prophet, we see their functions being described in this paragraph. And then we see the office of king and its function by the next phrase that says, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. That's the function of a king. A king governs. A king rules. A king is given the responsibility of protecting and overcoming the enemies of the people in which he is governing over. Christ is declared to be those functions. He governs in our hearts. 
Now, again, this goes back to how salvation is not just some kind of a concept. Uh, We sometimes treat salvation as a, a, a vocabulary word. Salvation here is being described as being effectually and particularly applied. Particular is another redemption back to particular redemption, specifically given to these individuals. The paragraph goes along with what the Bible says, not by what we want it to say. Now, we know that the references that are cited here, now this particular paragraph has a lot of references cited. We probably will not touch all of these today, and I would encourage you in your own study uh, to look at some of these verses. But the first reference that is cited makes reference to Christ uh, making intercession for us. Uh, John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. It moves on over to John 10, uh, verses 15 and 16. John 10, verses 15 and 16. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You can see the the application here of the particular redemption of the those that are mentioned. And Jesus even in, in John 10, 16 says, I must bring. He doesn't say, I'm going to give the option to these other sheep. He says, I must bring them. These are those in which this particular redemption is being applied. These are the ones I am making intercession for. These are the ones I'm not only interceding for, but these are the ones I'm actually uniting unto myself. Okay, He's not just making salvation something to be attained. He's actually applying salvation. He's saying to those the Father's given me, I'm actually communicating it. I'm applying it effectually to them. I'm, I am making their salvation real. It's real. It's effective. Uh, Jesus himself, again, over in John 17, 9, which is the third reference there. John 17, 9. And this is one of those declarative statements that people have wrestled with who want to somehow deny this idea of particular redemption or these, those that Christ has obtained eternal redemption for. Jesus' own words in John uh, 17, 9 are these. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. I pray not for the world. Jesus is not sitting sitting next to the Father, praying unto the Father, Father, I pray that the whole world comes to salvation and waiting for them to take that step. He's actually interceding for the ones the Father's already given to him. We somehow have, uh, in our our religious uh, motives I'll use. We've somehow made salvation something that Jesus is just kind of sitting there waiting on people to take it or leave it. Instead of understanding that biblically what Jesus is actually doing is he's effectually applying the salvation to those the Father has given to him and he is uniting them. He's actually doing it, not just making it possible. 
Now, that's a, that's a far cry from the popular religious cent, religion centered around me movement. Is that Jesus is awaiting your coming to him. He already knows you're coming to him because he is one that has already obtained eternal redemption for you. It's not a mystery. He's, he's already applied it. Salvation's already been applied, and that's how we're going to see by the priest, prophet, and king. Makes intercession, uniting them. As a prophet, he reveals. And then as a king, he governs. So the authors of the confession are referring to his death as the very basis of his prayers for the salvation of his chosen people. Remember the context of John 17, 9, is that Jesus is praying unto the Father for his disciples based upon his coming death. His death is the avenue in which his intercession will be made possible. Does that make sense to everybody? His death is what he's praying. He's praying about his coming death. And it's through his death that this intercession and this uniting and this application of salvation is going to take place. That's, that's, what, the, that's what the confession writers are saying because they're saying that this is what the scriptures are telling us. So John 17, 9 is the prayer of Jesus in which he asked the Father for the safety and the ultimate salvation of his chosen people. Father, whoever you've given me, this is my prayer. Not for the whole world, but for those you've given me. Now there's not a hint of he wonders if they're actually going to come. Because that's why we read John 6.37, John 6.37, which as a reminder, we just read it, says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Jesus is not in heaven wondering and worrying and anxious about whether or not people who are given to him by the Father are going to come to repentance one day. They've already been given to him by the Father. That's the beauty. <laughs> that's the beauty of biblical theology, folks. That's the beauty when we really see Christ in all of his glory. And you and I who are in Christ today, that's the most comforting thing I could have possibly told you today. That if you were in Christ, there was no way he was going to cast you out. You were given to Christ by the Father. Now we know that Jesus was praying in John 17 before his death. Hebrews 7.25 and actually Romans 8.34. Now these are not two verses that are mentioned in the confession, but this is the work. These are New Testament passages that describe Jesus' work today as a priest. All right, so let's look at Hebrews 7.25 first. So now we've, we have fast-forwarded beyond Jesus' prayer before going to the cross, and now we're looking at what he's doing as of right now. Okay, now there's no indication anywhere in the Bible that tells us that Jesus is doing anything different than he was when the book of Hebrews was penned. Okay, his, his role as priest has not changed anywhere. Okay, so Hebrews 7.25. This is in the context of verses 23 through 28, which is about his unchangeable priesthood. Verse 25 says, Wherefore he is able, that's Christ, also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Notice the emphasis on the word able. 
able to what? To save them to the uttermost. That is a declaration. Where do these people come? How do they get to God? They come through Him. They come unto God by Him, by Christ. They come to God, which implies leaving something else. So if a man comes to God, if a man or a woman comes to God, he must leave his or her sins and his own righteousness and say, this, in fact, is the way to God. Verse 7, 25, Hebrews 7.25 also tells us, how do we come? They come by Jesus Christ. No one should consider that anybody will ever be heard and saved by God apart from the merits of His Son. If a person today cries out to God separate from Christ, God is not going to save that soul. Do you all understand what I'm saying? How critical that is. So if a person says, we all come to God our own way, and as long as I cry out to God, then I am going to be, I have salvation applied. No, he's saying that the only way salvation is applied are to those who come through Christ on the merits of Christ alone. So if I try any other means to call myself saved, I have missed what the Bible says. Jesus is seated there as that intercessor and as his people that were given to him by the Father are brought to repentance. They are coming to God through him, through his interceding work. This is what he's doing now. It's it's an amazing thing to think that there are people whose eyes have been opened today, who yesterday were not even fully aware of their own depravity. But they were ones that were given to the Son by the Father. And today was their awakening day. Today was the day that their heart was made soft and their heart heart was made willing to believe. And suddenly that which they did not see before, now they see clearly. But that's why you you don't have to feel this pressure to rush somebody to try to apply salvation to their own life. You cannot open the eyes of a dead, blind man. But Christ can. And He does. He's not making salvation possible. He's already secured salvation. So when I pray for loved ones, when I pray for family members, when I pray for friends, when I pray for co-workers, I'm not praying with this idea, if you can save them, Lord, I'm saying, Lord, if this is your will, if they're one of yours, open their eyes that I might rejoice with them. And I'm comforted by the reality that he's not going to cast any of those out who come unto him. So that's part of his present work. We see that he gives us in, in Hebrews 7.25 where, where do these people come to? How do they come? And we also see the why. Why do they come? The poor sinner in coming to Christ has only one objective. The only reason a sinner comes to Christ, he has one objective. Salvation. Not to ask, would you consider saving me? He's coming to God because he has been saved. He's already, he is one that the Father's already chosen for the foundation of the world. His eyes have been opened to see the truth. 
People are not coming to God to try him out and see if this is going to work out for me. A man is seeking after God because God is already seeking him and God is already drawing him unto himself. You hear people all the time talk about, I woke up one day and I decided to go on this religious quest and I decided to travel the world seeking after God. They're not really seeking after God. They're seeking after concepts. But if a person continues and starts to view their own life, if you want to seek after God, the way you seek after God is looking at your own heart. You don't have to go thousands of miles around the world and see all sorts of religious relics. What you have to do is you're going to start with your own depravity. It's an amazing thing when people want to talk about God. They don't want to talk about their own sin. They don't want to talk about their own depravity. But they want to talk about historical facts. Where are things like Noah's Ark? Where is the tomb? Where are the beams that that they hung Christ on? Folks, none of those things ultimately matter. If I could give you the location of where Noah's Ark is perched at today or where it's buried at today, it would not change a believer's faith one iota. It wouldn't solidify my faith anymore. I wouldn't look at it and say, well, now I really believe that, that Noah's Ark actually occurred. I already believe that. Why? Because the Bible's already declared it, and God's already opened my eyes that that is the truth. You couldn't change my mind on that if you tried. You say, what if science proves that Noah's Ark didn't really exist? It wouldn't change my mind one iota. Because I'm not living by sight. I'm living by the faith that God has given to me through his son by opening my eyes and making me willing to believe. I'm not going to doubt that. See, we're always looking for evidence. And the evidence has already been applied. The salvation, that's why a person comes. If the entire world was offered to come to Christ. If, if you were just to say, look, I'm gonna, we're going to make a, a, a whole scale offer. Maybe just people just need to know the offers there. There will still be millions and millions of people that no matter how you frame it, no matter how you set it out before them, will never come to Christ no matter what the benefits are. They're not going to come to Christ unless he's opened their eyes for them to see the reality of their own depravity, their own sin, and their need of a Savior. It's the only way it's happening. But we we tend to make religion what man is seeking. Man, Man and his ultimate purpose is not seeking religion. Man is being brought face to face with the reality of who he is before God. And who we are isn't popular, but we are wicked, depraved sinners who deserve hell. And we don't deserve a single good thing from God. That's what we really are. And Christ is the, he is the interceding. He is the one that intercedes. We have acceptance with God because of him. We have the gift for which he has given. Salvation by Jesus Christ the Lord. So Christ, he does this, the functions of a priest, by making intercession. But a second aspect of being a priest is that he also does this by uniting us to himself, by giving us of his spirit. When Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away from you, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless, I will send unto you a comforter. 
It's expedient for you that I go away. Jesus was not saying, I'm going to send a hypothetical down to you that the Holy Spirit, if you would like to choose to grab onto the Spirit and you'd like to take possession of the Spirit, that'll be your free will to choose. No, he told them that I'm going away and I'm going to send the Comforter unto you. Jesus was not making the Holy Spirit indwelling possible. He was actually saying, I am uniting the Spirit to you through me. Does that make sense to everybody? I'm, he, was, he, was, he was the one doing the uniting. He wasn't just throwing it out there and saying, look, if you want the Spirit, grab him. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but he didn't say, the Spirit's going to be floating by. If you want to grab on, grab on. No, he said, I will send him unto you, and he will reveal me to you. He actually did the uniting. He didn't just kind of say, here he is, take him or leave him. No, he was not talking to the world. He was talking to his disciples. So why are we in union with Christ this morning? It's because we have the very Spirit of Christ himself. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This, this idea that uh, the, the work of mediation is just something that is done kind of in a random way. No, the work of Christ as priest and his mediatorial work is personal. It's a personal work in the believer. That's why the confession calls it at the end here, and in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. That's why the confession calls this a wonderful and unsearchable work. The priestly work of Christ. So these functions of prophet, priest, and king and salvation, he reveals, he intercedes, he governs. So this application of salvation, what does he do? Well, back to our confession, it says that Christ is the one that reveals the mystery of salvation to us. When we were studying Ephesians 1... We're into Ephesians 2 now, but Ephesians 1 was developing the entire theme of the mystery of salvation. We talked a lot about uh, foreordination and foreknowledge and predestination and election. Why? Because that's the mystery of salvation being revealed. Paul develops that. Now in 1 John 5.20, which is one of the passages that's mentioned here, 1 John 5.20, this goes right along with this idea of the application of salvation. 1 John 5.20. And of course, as, as this is, is written to us, we see that he's giving us something. 1 John 5.20. And we know, I love the emphasis of the word know, that the Son of God is come and hath given us Okay, given us is means to apply. If I if I give you today, if I give you ten dollars, I am applying it towards you. You're either going to take that money and put it in your pocket, or you're going to take that money. You're going to put it into the bank account. I'm giving I'm giving it to you. I'm applying it. You don't have the money. You don't have it until I give it to you. Okay, he connects that thought with this and. We know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding. So what's being given? Understanding. 
understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal God. And it's interesting, John ends that entire letter with little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so what's the significance of idols with regard to that? Because there would be many things that would try to interfere and disrupt where that knowledge came from and where the understanding of the mystery of salvation came from. I know I'm of God because it's been revealed to me through Jesus Christ. Not only as a priest, but this references the application of salvation. He obtains it and applies it. So not only did Christ obtain my salvation, he actually applies my salvation. Now there are some that teach that Jesus obtained salvation, it's up to you to apply it. It's up to you to make it real. It's the, the vernacular that says, God has done his part, now you do your part. Have any of you ever heard that expression? Okay. God's just waiting on your half. I thank the Lord every day. That's not the basis of my salvation. Because I know without him actually applying salvation, there is no way I'm coming to God on my own. You know, we don't even know how bad we are until Christ applies that truth. We don't realize how depraved we are until we're actually brought face to face with what sin actually does. When we read verses like, for the wages of sin is death, do we really, I mean, we, that's probably a verse most of us at some point in our life, we have memorized. But do you realize what's being said? For the wages of sin is death. Your smallest sin deserves death and separation from God in a place called hell. Your smallest sin on your best day. Okay, now there is no small sin, but your smallest sin by man's standards, that's what it deserves, right? So it, some people say, well, it sounds better if Christ just obtains it, scatters it, makes it possible for anybody who wants it. It sounds better. In our humanity, it, it somehow makes us feel better that, well, if that person chooses Christ or doesn't Christ, well, it's, it doesn't choose. It's on them. They had, a, they had a chance. Then what do we do with all of these things where Jesus himself says, all that the Father has given me? So the only conclusion we can come to then is that God had to have, if, if that meant all that come unto me, there has to be some level of, well, who are those people? And I start to ask myself the question, well, then... Why didn't he just save everybody? The reality is, is because Christ is not just obtaining it. He's actually applying it. It speaks of Christ giving us an understanding so that we may know him. And I like what John says. That is true. I want to know the truth today, folks. I don't want you to give me something false. I want you to know the truth. And I want to know the truth. I want to know the true, living, eternal God. Now, you think about this. How big of an accomplishment would it be for a depraved sinner to apply his or her own salvation? And how would you do that? 
How would you actually apply your own salvation to make yourself worthy to stand before a holy God one day? You listen to some theology that's out there, and there are some amazingly horrible ideas going around. If you believe works can save you, what you're actually saying is, I actually believe I can apply my own salvation. That means I can determine what work or works is enough. Is there a book on that that you could point to that says, here's how many works it takes? You have no basis of truth to base that on. But you do have the basis of truth to base upon where sal- how salvation is obtained through Christ and how it's applied through Christ. Bible will back that up every single time. But when you ask people who believe they're saved by works, they cannot give you an answer as to what work saves them. I say, is there a single work that would save you? Well, no, not you got you have to do you see what I it never ends. And those people sadly live miserably because they're trying to obtain and apply something they do not have the power to do. See, Jesus is a prophet because he's the one that actually revealed it to us. That's part of his prophetic work. Part of his prophetic work is to to not only put it out there, but he's the one that's obtaining it and applying it. When the prophets of the Old Testament were speaking, they were not talking about a Jesus that was coming that would just make things possible. They were talking about a Messiah, Savior. If, they, if salvation was supposed to be 50-50, the prophets would have called Jesus a helpmeet, not a Savior. Did you ever see Isaiah say, look forward to the helpmeet that's coming, who's going to go 50% of the way, you go the other 50 when we talk about helpmeet in the marriage relationship, it's a beautiful picture. I don't want Jesus to be a helpmeet in my salvation. Because there's no way I can apply or obtain any part of it. No, they said a Messiah is coming. A king, a counselor, a savior. So the application, he obtains it and he applies it. Thirdly, the basis of salvation, the the confession tells us that it is his free grace. And all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. So he acts as priest and prophet in that Christ persuades us to believe, but also to obey. This is the doctrine that refers us back to the doctrine of irresistible grace the doctrine of the effectual call of God. So since he is prophet, priest, and king, there are instances in Scripture where he is functioning as both priest and prophet at the same time. So when we talk about irresistible grace and we talk about the effectual call, that's his prophetic work working with his priestly work. We're drawn to faith in Christ by his work as a priest and a prophet. Is that, did I make that clear? Did that sound as rambling as I thought it did? He reveals it, but also does the interceding, obtains and applies. But he's in the function of a priest and a prophet. We're drawn to faith by those two functions. His work as prophet, revealing, and his work as priest, interceding. 
So the basis is free grace. It's absolute. But it also talks about there, about persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit. Who's doing the governing? Christ is doing the governing. You always wonder about the crowd today that says, Christ doesn't have to be the Lord of my life. Well, according to the confession, that if you're in Christ, he is the Lord of your life. This is not a decision that you... We have this, this idea that, okay, I have, two, I have a two-stage salvation. The first stage is when I decide to accept Christ as my Savior, and the second stage is when I decide to make Him the Lord of my life. Salvation, that's already all applied. I, I am going to struggle mightily, and I think biblically you couldn't, I don't think you could prove it out, how a person could be in Christ and say, I'm in Christ, I'm saved, but He's not the Lord of my life. I don't see how you can separate those two. Because he's actually the one doing the governing. He's actually the king. That's, his, that's that function as a king. How does he govern our hearts? By the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of the living Christ. When I sin, and I'm convicted of my sin... That's Christ in his kingly role through the Spirit convicting me of that sin. He's telling me that's wrong. When I break a law in society, I'm breaking that law with the understanding that I'm breaking that law and there are consequences to breaking the law. It's not something that we have to sit and consider. He, there are two facets of this. That same Spirit that unites us to Christ is the same Spirit that directs us to obedience to his word. Folks, when I first, let me just be personal for a minute. When I first got into ministry, I thought it was my job to beg and persuade people to follow Jesus. I spent sermon after sermon after sermon with powerful heart-tugging, trying to convince you why Jesus was worthy of your follow. To me, it is a negligent waste of time. To try to beg you as a believer to obey God. Now I'm going to point out scripture and I'm going to say, here's what God says. But I am not going to try to tug on your emotions. And I'm not going to try to beg you to get out of your seat and come and, and, and lay on the altar. Now if you do that and that's what you feel like you need to do, do it. But you're not going to hear me try to persuade you, manipulate your emotions to make you feel guilty enough to say, okay, for the 100th time, I'm laying myself on the altar of God and from this point on, I'm following God. Folks, I've seen this happen so many times, it makes my head spin. And people come, and the Bible says, don't make a vow. You're better to not make a vow than to make a vow and keep breaking it. We treat like making a vow to God as something, well, if it, if it fails in six months, just come and rededicate your life to God. That was part of my vernacular, my vocabulary. Well, I'm going to preach a message today on rededicating your life back to God. All of these things we're doing when in the believer, if they're truly being governed by Christ, they're going to know their sin. Now, they may sit under the preaching of the word and they're going to see a scripture and God's going to take that scripture and apply that to their lives and say, this is you. But I'm not going to try to tell you a heart-wrenching story to make you come and be a follower of Jesus Christ. I spent a lot of those years trying to, trying to 
convince 13 through 18 years, 13 to 18 year old. That was my, that was my main focus. Make these 13 through 18 year olds, give them a reason to follow Jesus. Give them points, give them prizes. What a negligence, what, a, what negligence as a preacher that was. If I have to beg you, if I have to beg us to follow God, there's already something wrong in what we are. Because if you truly believe that Christ has obtained your salvation, and he's not only obtained it, but he's applied it, there is no question about who's the Lord of your life. Now that doesn't mean we're going to be sinless. There are days you are going to get up and you're going to feel out and out ornery. And you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. Folks, it happens to every single one of us. We, we just get up and we know today, you know what? I just don't feel like it. But don't let that just be your determining factor as to whether or not you're truly in the faith. When you see passages like all that the Father has given to me, I will in no wise cast out or they must come to me. Folks, there's a comfort in that. Now, Paul would say that's not a license to sin. And you don't even have that desire to look at salvation and say, yeah, Christ obtained it, Christ applied it, but I can still do whatever sin I want. There's still something faulty with your salvation if that's your mindset. Not that you won't have that mindset, not that you won't occasionally do that, because the Bible tells us there's pleasure in sin for a season. I've heard preachers stand up and spit and holler and say, there's no fun in sin. Are you kidding me? There's probably a lot of fun in it. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but that means it chews you up and it spits you out. It ends in death. That's where it ends. Every single time it ends in death. You say, not this little sin, does it? See, Christ is king is this idea of the Lord of our life. But even more specifically, not only is he governing our heart by the word and spirit, but look what this phrase says. He actually governs their hearts by his word and spirit and overcomes all their enemies. You realize the enemies in your life, Satan in particular, is already been overcome. When John said, greater is he that is in you than he is in the world, he was making a reference to the presence of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you by the living Christ has already overcome Satan and every one of those demonic angels that is trying to influence your life. And I cannot say it more clearly than this. Spiritual warfare is real. There is demonic oppression. There are demons trying to disrupt you and your life. Satan is described as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, as a child of God, you cannot be devoured by Satan. You cannot be overcome by Satan. You can't lose your salvation to Satan. Jesus is never going to come to a place and say, you know what, this person that I had saved, I had once obtained and applied their salvation, they have become so bad, I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell them to you, Satan. Pay the right ransom and I'll sell their soul to you. That doesn't happen. There's some preaching that actually sounds like that's what they believe happens. Can you imagine being part of a, a part of God who would just give up? Folks, I'm telling you this morning something personal. 
Do not give up on anybody. Just keep praying. Just keep giving. Keep preaching the word. Keep standing strong. And keep persevering and keep going forward. Because you have a Savior who has done it all for you. You shouldn't have to be convinced. Is is Jesus king? No, he is the king. He's overcome all of our enemies. These are these elements of his kingly work. He rules in our heart. How does he rule? By the word of God. If you want to know what God wants you to do, it's in the Bible. Not in what you feel. I've told you this. I take Bibles and I give people. I say, what does that say? Yes, but pastor, I feel this. Your instruction and your guidance and your governing is not coming through what you feel. It's coming by what the Word of God says. I know what the Bible says, but God wants me to do this. That's not God wanting you to do that. That's your own depravity wanting you to get whatever it is you're trying to get. Now, the Spirit convinces us. He encourages us, but He's not going to speak something contrary to the Word. That's how he rules by the word of God. He rules over our lives externally. How does God show his authority in our lives? Folks, just by the things he gives us in life to obey. I'm not going to go far on this, but I'm telling you. The last nine months has created a spirit of rebellion among believers that has got my jaw dropping. I'm not, I am more appalled at the rebellion of Christians than I am about the world. I expect the world to rebel. I expect the world to burn down cities. I expect the world to do vicious, vile things and rebel against authority. But I I could have never imagined that this thing would cause me to sit back and say, how are all these believers suddenly now say the answer is this let's rebel against everything you know god has given us things to keep us in line and yes there are things that we could never do because we would be going against god but most of the arguments happening today have nothing to do with going against god they are it it is it is just pricking at our old selfish nature that says i don't like it so i want it my way So if I don't like it, I just push it away. Submission to authority is not about whether we like it. I don't always like the fact that God expects me to submit to his way. There are days I just don't like what God expects of me. But I hope and pray that there never comes a day when I just simply say, you know what, God, you're just not good enough. I'm going to go do my own thing for good. See, it's a joy to actually have God ruling in our hearts. It should actually be a joy in our heart that God has established some semblance of authority. It's amazing how many people want to rebel against the very things God has put there to protect them. It's easy to say, I don't want this until it's gone. And then when it's gone, suddenly they say, where are you? I picked up the phone to call you and nobody showed up. Well, that's special thanks to your rebellion against what God was trying to give you. There's bad actors in every aspect of society. There's bad preachers, but they're not all, that doesn't mean they're all bad. 
Authority has always been man's greatest problem. Don't tell me what to do. So how do you know that? Go all the way back to Genesis and find out what the first thing was. Don't eat. Why? Because I said so. (laughs) Satan slithers up to them and says, you know what? The reason God doesn't want you to have that is because he knows if you eat of that, you're going to be like him. They believed it. God's keeping something from me. Christ has overcome all of those those enemies. Sin, death, hell, the grave. He rules internally by the word of God. He rules us externally by the things he governs and his providences. Even those who are set against us, folks, do not miss this. Even those who are set against Christ and his word are being providentially ruled by him. If you would just look at the landscape and say, this is not God losing control. This is God's providential hand and his sovereignty being carried out, even though it's an absolute mess. (laughs) That's what I feel sometimes. It's a mess. But God's not left the control. So let's think about this practically. So as this confession continues to dig deeper into this official work of the mediator think about how it joins all three of these things prophet priest and king it brings us to a place of just being amazed at how good he is and amazed at his glory but i think even more personally how he is suited to meet all of our needs By his grace, he's, he's, he meets all of our needs. Free, unmerited, absolute, unconditional grace. If his grace was based on conditions, I couldn't rely on it. Because I know I'm not always going to live up to what I'm supposed to be. The doctrine of what we've learned about even unconditional election and particular redemption joined together in the work of the mediator. When you see his work of prophet, priest, and king, you're seeing election and redemption being joined together. And as the confession says, he does not do this because of a condition of foreseen faith. What you see in our life is the result of his work in us. We are what we are because of his work and the work he's done in us. All right, let's go ahead and pray. I've pushed our limits this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the great reminders. And Lord, as we think about the great truths that have have been presented before us today, Lord, we know that we haven't even uncovered them all. But Lord, we are thankful to know that the application of our salvation has been done through Christ and through Christ alone. We thank you for saving unworthy sinners from taking us out of our sin and setting us upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this church would be to your honor and to your glory. And may we reflect your grace in our life in all of our actions and all the words we speak. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.